It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is part four in a series that I'm doing over this uh, summer and into the early fall. It's called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. And since this is the fourth episode, that means there's three before it. And the three before it, I have to acknowledge, have been uh, uniquely challenging, uh, hard to phrase. We're, We're in a culture that is highly sensitized. And so it can be difficult to articulate certain things without fanning the wrong things into flame. And so in a sense, we have to work together as we navigate through this. Uh, Most people that know me know that I'm not liberal in my leanings, and I more would be classified in the conservative category. However, I, I literally am laboring in my life not to be defined just as a conservative, but I definitely do not want to be defined as a liberal either. I want to be a Christian. And the reason I say that is actually very, very important because I feel like part of the polarization that is taking place and the inability to be able to speak to the ones I feel called to speak to has to do with classifications. And if I'm gonna be classified, I wanna be classified with Jesus. I do not wanna be classified with a political party. That does not mean that my views change or that my political leanings are suddenly uh, being sucked into some vortex. It's that I don't want to be identified by those, and I do not want to wear them on my sleeve as primary elements of my life. In other words, though I may, if I had one vote, place it this way, I have a life that I want to live, and if I'm going to engage with a soul, I want them to hear Jesus first, above my political leanings towards how I feel about a constitutional government, or how I believe government should be limited and small and it shouldn't get out of control and spend all the money on this. You know, I have various views of how th- certain things could be handled best, but I'm actually interested in someone's soul more than that. And so to the degree that I can effectively reach someone's soul, that is my primary agenda. And yet I wanna create an environment that is most conducive to reaching their soul. And so as this is where you get the political dimension that always is sort of creeping in around the edges, but that's at least my premise. So as we're moving into part four, we have an unusual title, and I had various titles for this one. I actually just switched this this morning. The Ethics of Much. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I think there was Much the Miller's Son in the Robin Hood tales, uh, but this is not talking about Much the Miller's Son. Uh, This is a different sort of much, uh, and so I'll explain that as we progress. Privilege. When we get to the word privilege, uh, especially in our modern day, we are touching on some awkward territory. Now, it may not be awkward for you. It's just a word to you, but there is... Certain movements in the world today that are uh, sort of skewing this word or using this word almost like a weapon, and it's, it's become uncomfortable for many of us, where uh, we don't want to even talk about it. We don't want to bring it up. And so I'm going to, of course, uh, dive straight in to it just to make us uncomfortable. But privilege in sort of a modern understanding of it would be this, a hand up, a boost 
an advantage over others due to heritage, an extra favor due to race, gender, height, clothing, talent, or intellect. I remember when I was young, the big issue was uh, that men always had a privilege over women in the workplace, that most places did not want women hired, they wanted men hired, and it was a big outcry. That was called the feminist movement. And I remember when I was actually uh, graduating from high school, I was a bit upset over what was taking place in our culture. Now, I was, a, I was the most slighted, this is, and I'm gonna put quotes around this, the most slighted group uh, in the country at the time. I was white, middle-class, Christian, American kid. You know, it's just like, boy, if you could get one thing that would just make it hard for me to get anything. Like, for instance, I remember looking at this long list of scholarships that I could go after. And there was like nothing I could go after uh, that was, because I was excluded for every single thing based on my race and based on my status, you know, being middle class, whatever it was. I remember sort of being a little ticked off by that. I didn't like that at all. And so I was experiencing the effects of what's called affirmative action, where there was a correction, where there's been a favor towards uh, someone like me in the past, but now that's going to be corrected. And guess who? you know, get shafted in the process. The guy that is modern and living today. At least that was my perspective. And I want us to be sensitive to this because it is very easy to feel like you are the one being bullied or you're the one that is losing the privilege. In fact, that's one of the things that I would observe is almost every single person in here could probably claim that they have been slighted and someone else is more privileged. Because it's interesting, you know, the black people would say, hey, they've been slighted and they haven't been privileged. And then the white people could say the same. Isn't that an irony? The Christians, oh, it's a very common one today, guys, where we feel like our rights are being taken away and truth isn't being received and there's an oppression and there's strategic conspiratorial things coming against the church of Jesus Christ and we feel slighted. Someone else is privileged and we are not. And What I want to put my finger on is that, and I want us to be extra watchful not to allow the enemy to play us as the victim uh, in this. Victim mentality is a very, very dangerous thing. And I would say it's actually one of the most deep set issues that that someone can can deal with. It's very hard to remove. Oh yeah, spiritually it can be dealt with, but you don't wanna mess with it. It is a very, very dangerous thing. Self-pity which is the very beginnings of the victim mentality, just looks, you know, just looks like this little furry, cute, kitten-like thing. And yet, it has claws and it has teeth and it bites deeply. And it can turn you into a sob story. You are called to be a triumphant picture of Jesus Christ. Let's not allow the enemy to play us. So as I use this word, I'm going to uh, stick my screen, my, my picture up. That's, that's me on my bike riding through sand. And so if you've been a part of the previous messages, you know that I have to put that up when I'm walking into dangerous territory. Because if you've ever ridden a bike on sand, you can easily lose control. I am currently riding my bike on sand. And I'm going to, oh, did I just put that up on the screen? Uh, white privilege. Hmm, Eric, let's not go there. And there's actually good reason. This is a highly sensitized issue. We have something called the critical race theory 
that has entered into, first of all, the educational side, but now into the political, now into the social sides of our culture, and has created a highly flammable uh, topic. And that is that if you are white, you have received great privilege, and you need to acknowledge that and sort of accept the fact that you have received something really good. Now, I, the way I'm going to address this is probably going to be exactly opposite of the way you think I would. And so we're just going to progress, but I'm just wanting you to know we're on a little sand right now. The privileged. Someone to whom much has been given and much has been committed. So I don't know if you can see it right there, but I just actually quoted a scripture. And I'm going to call that someone who is privileged. Now, I don't want to use the word privileged in this message, which is why I call this the ethics of much. Because the word privilege comes with a lot of baggage, and sometimes we can't see straight. So I'm going to describe the privileged in this message as someone to whom much, and I have quotes around that, much, has been given, and much has been committed. So let's look at the scripture that that comes from, Luke 12, 48. Every one to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So again, I'm not trying to make a political statement here, even though every one of you just sort of craves me to go off into the political territory with some of these things. No, I'm not going to because this isn't a political issue. It is, every, the devil always wants to make things a combat point. I see no debate in anything I'm about to describe to us as the church of Jesus Christ. And yet I'm going to be going into a territory that in a strange way, because of the strangulation of this topic in our generation, we have a tough time even acknowledging. And that is the fact that we have been given much. American much. Now, where I have much there, you could replace it with privilege, but no, no, I don't want to distract you with that word. So I'm going to put the word much in. Just being an American, I know not all of you are Americans, but just being American, we have much. In fact, it was said by someone, I don't remember who it was, but it's a, it's a really interesting statement that if you are just American, and I forgot what it was, if you have something simple like a phone, you are in the 98 percentile of the most wealthy people of all history. It's like you're, you're more wealthy than 98% of the rest of human history. It's like this ridiculous little thing that you have, and yet it immediately elevates you to a level of wealth that is so superior to the rest of human history. Yeah, so I would say we have much, so we're wealthier, oh, then I have 99% up there, so that must be what it is. Wealthier than 99% of people throughout all of history. Greater access to knowledge than any generation previous. We have government-aided healthcare. Now, whether, you, whether or not you even agree with it politically, it's still as much. We have government-sponsored education. Whether you want to use that education, it still is there. I mean, you know how many countries have hadn't, haven't had education Education has been one of the greatest privileges of the wealthy class for generations and generations. Government protected bankruptcy. You can even blow it in business and still have government protection. It used to go to the poorhouse, to prison. Incredible. Government supplied legal aid. Every, you'll always be represented in a court of law. And 
This is incredible. What we have been given and what we take for granted, I'm just going to call it what it is. It's much. We have been given much as Americans. Okay, now I'm going to even make this more personal. I'm going to call it Ludi much. I know there's only a couple of you in here that would be Ludi, but we have a home filled with love. You know how few homes on earth are filled with love? If you're a Ludi, immediately, you just have much. We have a home filled with laughter. Eh, that's, that's a rare thing. We have a home filled with Jesus. We have a home that seeks to build world changers. Just think about that. Why would I want to complain about what I don't have or how the world is against me when I have a home like this? When I live in a country like this, well, there's a lot that I have here. Ellerslie Church, much. So just this gathering of believers that you guys, you know, while you're here uh, for this semester, are hanging around. We are a church filled with wonderful people. Have you ever been around one of those churches that isn't filled with very wonderful people? Well, we have a church that is filled with wonderful people. We have a church that craves truth. Have you ever seen one of those churches where the pastor gets up and says something, everyone gets offended? you know, and holds back on their tithe, you know, to sort of punish the pastor for giving a message that was actually truthful and convicting. Well, we have a church that craves truth, even if it convicts. We have a church that serves other churches. Our entire focus is to wash the feet of other churches. We have a church full of laughter and life. They don't laugh at all my jokes, but most of them. This is a precious gift so we could look at the flaws in it and what's still weakness in it, and yet we could also put on the glasses of recognizing that we have received much. Much is real, whether we have eyes to see it or not. So Eric Ludi, much. Why did I get put in such a wonderful family? I mean, I think about growing up, and I, I looked around, and I saw so many broken homes. And I was in a home where my parents were happily married, and when my dad passed away, they were still married happily. That was my home. I have a dad that invested in me, that he had hard conversations with me, that no other father sat down with his son and talked about those things. And yet my dad did. Now, he might have done it imperfectly. It might have been one of some of the most awkward conversations I've ever had in my life. But guess what? He risked it, and he did it. Why did I receive that? Why did I receive such a healthy constitution? I'm just always healthy. Just like the Energizer Bunny. I just keep going and going and going. Well, there's other people that are sickly that don't have the physical constitution that I have. That's much, guys. Now, you're, some of you are even getting jealous. You're like, why did he ever get that? However, it's important for you as I go through my list that you go through your list. You see, I'm not actually trying to brag about Eric Ludi. I'm trying to acknowledge that there is no reason why I should start bemoaning and complaining about my life. I've been given much. Why did I get a mind that can learn and understand quickly? Why did I get so many opportunities that others did not? Why did I see my sin, see my Savior, and come to him for salvation? Why did I get introduced to the power of the gospel life? Think about that. I didn't just get saved, but God has introduced me to the power of the gospel so that I can live with triumph. 
Why did I get matched with the greatest woman on planet Earth? Uh, some of the guys in here are like, what? How did he get her? Huh? It's, she's already taken, guys. <laughs> why did I get the best kids ever? And why did I get the best job any man has ever had? See? This is how you think. This is how a believer thinks. So when we talk about, the, when the word privilege comes up and it makes us all sensitive, it's like you saying that I have privilege. I do have privilege. <laughs> That's the ironic twist of this thing. It's like, yeah, I do have privilege. I do have much. Not in the way that maybe it is being expressed, but for me, I want to recognize that I have been given something. And as a result, something is required of that. Much is easier to see when you are not the one with the much. Have you ever looked at one of those like rich kids that gets all sorts of things and your family doesn't quite have the same resource and they don't even seem to notice that they get these things? It's like, uh, yeah, that's not normal. But when you have the much, most of the time you don't see the much that you have. You don't. Because what you deem much is a very specific category of much. Usually it's wealth. Usually it's opportunity. You know, like, yeah, if I was in that family, I could have had that opportunity as well. But I'm not. They're the ones with the much, and I'm not. And yet, technically, you have something. There is something that you have been entrusted, but oftentimes you can't see your own much. It's just one of the diseases of humanity. The classic picture of the misuse of much. The southern plantation owner sipping his lemonade under the shade of his front porch. So, I know, I'm going back to this one issue. Uh, how do I always end up there? But when we have the southerners and you have this conflict of race where you have slavery in our country, there's this picture in our history of the southern plantation owner sipping his lemonade. This guy's not sipping his lemonade, but he's still, it's a pretty cool picture of a southern plantation owner. Well, guess what? Everyone else is working on his behalf. So the slaves are working and doing his job, doing his farming, so that he can sip his lemonade. Classic picture of what we could call the abuse of much. And this is a sensitivity point in our culture right now, which is, of course, what we're covering. We're covering 1914 and 1974, even though we never seem to get there. And, but we're laying the foundations for the sensitivity and the tenderness of our culture at this time. And by the way, I think I will get to like 1915 today. Uh, we'll take like one step in. It, it's going to be a big event, guys. The misuse of much. So this is what I'm going to describe as the misuse of much, and we're going to see it in our history. And that is to keep the much for yourself and your family. So there is something that is going to be given... And this, like, southern plantation owner, for instance, is going to have much. And then he is going to do his best to keep that much and to not share that much. He doesn't want to share that much. His job is to keep that much for him and his family. And it sounds very noble, but that's actually not why God gave you much. God didn't give you much so you can hoard it, so that you can keep it for yourself and for your family, even though I'm not going to say you shouldn't care for your family. I'm not saying that because you're no better than an infidel if you just gave all your much away and your family starved. That's not actually how you handle your much either. The proper use of much to extravagantly share 
the much with others. When you recognize that you've received much, what it should do is it should trigger a genuine thankfulness and rejoicing in your soul and your disposition should immediately begin to turn outward and say, if I have received this, then I want to give this. One of the things that has, uh, I was watching a This Is Your Life uh, old broadcast back in the it's like 50s or something like that, and I think it was for Joe Lewis. I saw two of them, and I think this is the one with Joe Lewis, it was. And it was, it was fascinating because Joe is going to come upon very hard times financially, if you remember my first episode. But he is going to come into a lot of money as the heavyweight uh, champion of the world, and he's gonna have more money than any black man has ever had. And what is he gonna do with that? He's gonna pour it into his family and he's gonna pour it into uh, other black people who have never had it. Very interesting to me. And then during the war, the reason he's gonna come into financial uh, crisis is actually during the war, when he, received, he, he defends his heavyweight championship uh, and he receives the equivalent of like, I think a $500,000 check and he signs it over to uh, the war effort. And the IRS is going to say, you, had, you, you received that as income. You should have donated it. Instead, you just signed it over. So, and he does that with two different checks. So he, he owes like a million dollars back taxes and it just like cripples him. And, but, I was very fascinated to have, it's, this is your life, Joe Lewis, and all these people are coming in that actually like, are saying, he gave everything to me. He, like, he bought his parents a house, he, he sponsored his brothers and sisters through school. It's like, very interesting because he seemed to have a clearer understanding of how to handle much than most people. And in many regards, it's because he didn't have much. And that when he received much, it was clear to him that he was receiving much, and he knew what to do with it, which wasn't to hoard it, but was to give it. I was thinking, that's a really good model for us, but it's hard for us to see that, because most of us don't even see our much. So we cling to what we do have because it's not much, as opposed to recognizing, no, 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 we have much. So we have a lot of much to give. The man in the water. Now, I'm going to share this story throughout this semester in a different way. But the man in the water is a certain story in history, in American history. 1983, there's a plane that is going to crash. It's the dead of winter. It's going to crash into the icy waters of the Potomac. And out of, uh, I don't remember how many people are on the flight, but it's a couple hundred, there's a handful that are going to survive, and they're going to make their way out of the plane. But hypothermia is setting in very quickly. I mean, this is icy frigid waters, middle of the winter, and the plane is going down. So they're like in the water, in the ice. Uh, I mean, it's a very, very desperate situation. There's going to be a helicopter and uh, a medic that are going to respond to this because the, the typical rescue would have been a long time out. Everyone would have died. But this one, this one guy with a helicopter sees what is happening and immediately takes off. He has a medic in there that is reaching over to extend his hands to pull in the, the people that are still alive. This one man who we, I'm going to say it this way, we don't know who he is, but he makes it through the crash and is the first one that they're reaching down to take out. So I'm going to just start by saying he received much. And you're like, that ah, doesn't sound like he received much. Sounds like he had a really bad day. But he's one of the few people on this plane that survived. 
and he's actually being offered the first rescue opportunity. I would say that's much. I mean, it's a funny way of looking at it, but I would say that's much. He has received much. You know what he's going to do with his much? He's going to go under the water. He's going to take one of the other people, and he's going to push them above the water so that they can be taken out. They're going to come back and want to take him. Instead, he's going to go under the water, and he's going to push out someone else. And the next time they come back, he had drowned. And, you know, when you hear a story like that, you're like, well, that's sad. Or you could say, that's Christianity. (laughs) Right there. You have been given much. What are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to spend it on myself. I'm getting out of here. Or would you be willing to stay in the water a little longer? Have you ever had that when you're, you come to Jesus? Like, God, why don't you just take me home? Wait, I mean, what? And he goes, would you be willing to stay in the water a little longer and help some other people get into the helicopter? That's, a, that's an interesting request to make of me. Because, I, I mean, I, I survived this. I mean, very few people have come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I did. Could I just get out of here now? Actually, our job has just begun. We've received much, so now much is required. Are we willing to go back down into the cold and to push others towards Jesus? What are you doing with your much? So many of us are hoarding our much, and this is our American history right here. We have a people group that have hoarded much because they don't want to share their much with a people in our ranks that could threaten that much. Now, when I say this, this could sound very political, but the white people in our country historically have really been afraid of the black people having the same much that they have. Now, it's for national security purposes. They didn't trust the black people. Remember I told you about the, uh, the evolutionary theory which showed that they came from a different animal strain and it was more violent and wild. And I, by the way, I don't believe any of that. Okay, so I don't know if you think I think that. No, this is a literal thought in our history that has created a threat. We can't allow them to have the much. We preserve the much for us. We keep the much from them. The misuse of much, to keep the boost for yourself and your family, to protect the advantage at all costs, to ensure that no one else claims your privilege. So look at 1 Corinthians 10.24. This is a very odd scripture that most of us have a tough time swallowing and digesting. Now, I have four different translations of it here. First is King James. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. That that is a very strange statement. And not that the other ones are more clear. I'll read them. Let no one seek his own. This is New King James but each one the other's well-being. ESV says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And NASV says, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own much, but to give his much to those around him. I mean, that's basically what it's saying. To seek another man's wealth? How many, I mean, this is the opposite of American capitalism. <laughs> this is like, this is the strangest thought. It's like, okay, I'm going to seek your wealth. Uh, that sounds like a very bad business venture. That I'm going to go out and make you wealthy. Meanwhile, hey, what about me? Uh, I sort of need to take care of me. So this is the challenge we face. 
is what we need to recognize is Christianity is about being grounded and founded in Christ and being made wealthy in the kingdom of heaven. How did we do that? We were in Adam. We transferred from the kingdom of darkness by faith into Jesus Christ. And when we did, we were brought near by the shed blood of Jesus. And we were brought into his treasury. We were brought into the throne room of grace where we may obtain mercy and find grace for help in time of need. Everything we could ever need for life and godliness has been supplied to us. We are wealthy. We suddenly have much. Maybe not in a physical sense, like we might not have a lot of coins in our pockets or bills, you know, just sort of burning a hole in them. However, we have much spiritually. And with that much, we want to seek others much so that they too would become wealthy in the kingdom of heaven. And this is our orientation in life. Now, sometimes that actually also includes our material possessions. If we have a lot of material possession, then we want to leverage that so others could become spiritually rich as well. But the key isn't material wealth. It is spiritual wealth. That is the greatest gain we could ever have and we could ever give. Jesus saw those that were in bondage, enslaved, and oppressed. What is he going to do, guys? Because I know this sounds strange, but Jesus is the wealthiest one in the universe. And it just sounds funny to say it, doesn't it? Uh, To call Jesus a rich man. However, Jesus has everything. He has power. He has love. He has truth. He has everything we need. What is he going to do? He is going to give up his much so that we could be made wealthy. He is going to seek another's wealth. Whose? Ours. Wow, what a model. And to call Jesus privileged sounds really weird. It's not the term we would use. He's God. But he is going to use his much to strengthen us and to hand it to us. So he gave up everything he had to not just rescue us, but to supply for us. Do you remember the the Good Samaritan? It's a great story, and it also deals with racial conflict too, if you want to say it that way. But you're going to have this Samaritan who really has no business caring for this Jewish guy anyways. they're, They're like arch nemesi. And he is going to not just care for him, and make sure that he is whole and healthy and protected, but then he is going to pay the bill. He is going to go out of his way, out of his purse, to care for another. I could just say, this is Christianity, guys. This is what we do with our much. This is what we do with the supply that God has given to us. If we have, then God says, would you share? But this is all I have. Do you remember the widow? and her, her son, they, uh, they have a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, and they were about to make one final cake and eat it and die because it was in a famine. This is in the days of Elijah. Remember, the, the heavens were, uh, were shut up, and she, that's all she has is a little flour and a little oil. The first thing Elijah the prophet says is, make me a cake first. What? And then he says, and your flour and oil will never run out. Did you get the lesson right there? There's a lesson in that. When Jesus comes to us, what he says is, take the little you have and give it to me, and you'll never run out. 
You see, we will never run out of our much. It's an endless supply of oil and flour. If we are willing to give first, if we're willing to sacrifice and let go of our much to him, we will always have much to give. Much gone all wrong. So here's the quote of what I'm going to say American history. Again, this is where the tensions come in. And I need to have my, you know, that picture of me on the, the bike riding through sand. This much must never go to them. Of course, you could switch out the word much there for quite a few different things. This right, this voting privilege, whatever it is, this status in society, this ability to buy land and property. You know that Joe Lewis, and I'm not trying to you know, beat the, the drum of Joe Lewis too much, but he had all this money and he could not buy property in, in most places in the country. It's like he couldn't. There was one place he trained and he, he always wanted to, that was the place he would always go and he could not buy a piece of property there. And the community loved him. They still have all sorts of memorials for him because he had kids programs. He would treat all the kids to ice cream uh, on the weekends. And yet he could not buy a house there and live there. And he's like, what a strange issue we have in our country. It's because there's a part of our country that did not want to share that much. And so there was a hindrance for the ability to share and to give. So we're going to get into our timetable now. We've been waiting a long time to start moving this story forward. So 1910, I know you're saying, I thought this was from 1914 to 1974. It is. But 1910 is going to be the funeral of Edward VII, which I hinted at, I think it was in the previous one. Yeah, the key to the beautiful city. And Edward VII was like the pin to the grenade. And when he was removed from the landscape of Europe, chaos reigned in Europe, and we're gonna, it's going to lead to World War I. And so all of the, the semblance of peace that was there, which was shaky, he sort of held it together. And it's sort of a picture of what I would call the Church of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ is like an Edward VII. We bring a certain peace to a world because we are outward in our focus. We're not inward like everyone else is. And so we can bring a sense of stability, but when the church goes wrong and when the church starts turning in towards itself, it's like we lose it. And in a sense, I feel sort of like the funeral of Edward VII is 2023. We're not functioning in our role. We are not the conscience of culture like we used to be. What, what are we doing? We're all self-preserving. It's like if I could just survive. And so 1910 is a parallel, I would say, with a time in which we are in now. And this is going to lead to 1914, where everything is like a powder keg. Europe is a powder keg. And it's just looking for one spark. And that one spark, if you've ever studied World War I, it is sort of odd that this rebel character named Gavriel Princip, he shoots the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife. Who, I mean, we don't know who Gavriel Princip is. We don't even know who the Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand is of Hungary. Uh, you know, it's Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary doesn't even exist anymore. It didn't exist after World War I. So everything about it seems dizzying. It's like, why would that start a world war? And of course, you can listen to my series, Spiritual Lessons from World War I, and you will understand it's very interesting. It is. But this is going to spark a war. And the, the United States does not want to get into this. Okay, Our foreign policy was we do not go over and fight foreign monsters. We stay here and we deal with That's your issue, Europe. 
And if you know the history of World War I, you know we are going to get embroiled in it, which is going to be my next message. But this one is just going to set the cultural template for what is going on at this exact time as we sort of start our storyline. Right at this time, in 1915, we are going to have an emergence of what I'm going to call the American protectors. They wore white, they wore a cross, oh, and they wore a hood. The American protectors on the screen, for those of you that are not uh, seeing this uh, via video, is a picture of a Ku Klux Klan member. It is very spooky. I don't know what it is about those pictures, but they, they just feel really, they give you the eebie-jeebies. But isn't it interesting that this was done under the banner of Christianity? What the Ku Klux Klan represents is everything that you would esteem if I took it out of the context of the Ku Klux Klan. True gentlemen, honorable, they're going to protect their women. If their women are threatened, they will lay down their life to preserve them. You're like, oh, that's really good. They go to church on Sundays. They live honorably. They keep their, their covenant into their marriage, their marriage covenant intact, and they will care for their kids well and even lay down their lives for their family. Have I said anything that's tripping you up? This is the motto, the vow of the Ku Klux Klan. They have a Christian worldview. But something has gone terribly wrong, guys. With your Christian worldview, what is the problem? That these others, this group that they have now diminished because of modern science to the level of animals, are a threat to our community. It's almost like if we had jackals uh, and you know, maybe wolves around and we had a problem with some breakout of wolves in Windsor and they were threatening households and we were like battening up the doors and everything and one group of men went out to fight the wolves like oh go the problem is the wolves in this storyline are a people group the wolves in this storyline are those that are of a different skin color and something has gotten off in the equilibrium of our history which makes it very hard for us to address now because it just sounds political if I bring it up. I mean, you have to admit, there's something about this topic that just like, it's like abortion. If I brought that up, it immediately becomes political. What if I just talk about the little unborn life and its value? Oh, you can't do that without sounding political. And what if I talk about the mom and her circumstances and her situation and the struggles she's going through? Oh, it just sounds political, Eric. These are the issues of our day for us as a church. Not just the unborn life, but the woman that is caring. Not just the woman, but the man who got her pregnant. This is all part of our purview. This is what we're responsible for. We can't just say, oh, well, I don't deal with that issue. We have a real cancer in our history. I love America, and I, I'm going to say this again. I love our country. And I believe God shed his grace upon us. And we have been used in a mighty way to impact the world for the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I said before, we have sent more missionaries than any nation ever. That's an incredible heritage, yes. But there are elements of our heritage, just like our individual lives. Like we could take any of your individual lives. Let's, we could even start with my life. And we could say, yeah, Eric is being used by God. But that doesn't mean I don't have pockmarks in my heritage or my life that God doesn't need to address. And so when God shines his light on something in my life, what should I do? No, I'm fine. Look, are you trying to rob you know, from the storyline, God, that we have going? Everyone thinks highly of me. I don't want to have to address that. Well, that's dumb. 
Why wouldn't I allow God to address everything in my life? Even if there are elements in my life which are strong and noble and right. But what if there's something in my life that isn't? Can we go after that? Or do we have to get all skittish and run away and say, no, no, no. So this is in our heritage. And by the way, it's still lingering there. This, as I'm pointing, for those of you that are getting this via podcast, I'm pointing at the picture on the screen of a Ku Klux Klan guy dressed in white in a white, scary, creepy hood and a cross, big cross on his chest. That, my friends, is not the heart of Christ. That is not the attitude of Christ. And so in our culture, which is very Christian, I can understand, just see if you can follow me. If you saw that as Christianity, can you understand why someone would want to stiff arm Christianity? You see, this is not representative of the heart of Christ. So if we don't address this and say, hey, this was wrong, and I, without having to be political about it, hey, I'm just bringing it up. This is wrong. 1915, the first blockbuster movie is released. This is actually what is going to freshly inspire the movement of the Ku Klux Klan, which, by the way, get this. Modern media, the impact of modern media, boom, right here. Now, they had some films, you know, some of the black and white films that were short. It was very hard to make a film at this time. And this is going to be the first massive release. I mean, this was, this was shown in the White House to Woodrow Wilson. He loved it. Everything, I mean, this was like rave reviews, massive success. Oh, a bit controversial around the edges, but what movie isn't? You know what that movie was? Originally, it was called The Klansman, but it was, re it was changed to The Birth of a Nation. Now, if you can't see it on the screen, if you can't see the picture I have, it's a Ku Klux Klan member on his white steed, or it's, well, his, the steed has a white cape over it as well. And this is going to show something, this movie, and I'm going to read a, a little bio of it so you can understand what the first blockbuster movie in America was. So Theater Magazine says this about it. The play, now this, this is written in 1906, so this was a play that was traveling the country before it became a movie. So this is about the play. The play, The Klansman, which has caused such a great stir in the South, will be presented at the Liberty Theater this city, January 8th. It deals with one of the gravest questions the American people have to face today, the Negro problem. Okay, if I were just to stop right there, do you guys see anything in the attitude or the thinking of this time period? This is a problem. What's the problem? It's a people group. We have a problem with a people. They felt threatened by this people. The Negro problem. I mean, even just the, the phraseology of it makes us very uncomfortable. Mr. Dixon, he's, he's the guy, Thomas Dixon's the one that wrote this play, and he's obviously the one behind the movie. Mr. Dixon, who's a preacher, a lecturer, novelist, and southern country gentleman, has long been known for the earnestness, we might almost say fanaticism, with which he deals with this important subject. Like Lincoln, he believes the colonization of the Negro in Africa or elsewhere is the only solution. And the present play is intended to show what calamities might befall this country unless something of the, ki of the kind is done. 
So the idea was, now it's somewhat unfair to try and utilize Lincoln to back up his statement. Lincoln, earlier in his political uh, work, had proposed that he would probably side with a colonization because we, we did have, it was a real problem. It's not that we could call it, we wouldn't call it the Negro problem, we would call it the racial problem. In other words, it's just as much the white man's problem as it is the black man's problem. However, because uh, Lincoln earlier in his uh, political work had mentioned that, now it's, you know, this guy's trying to reference it. It's like, oh, when Lincoln proposed this, and yet what Lincoln did is set them free, and there's a big difference between that. However, the idea was, what if we just created a colony for them somewhere like in Africa, and we just ship them all out? That was what the proposal was, and that's what Thomas Dixon was after. So he said, this is the only solution, and the present play is intended to show what calamities might befall this country unless something of the kind is done. Actually, the play deals with the Reconstruction period from 1866 to 1870 when the South, bleeding after the war, was terrorized by the newly freed slaves and unscrupulous carpetbaggers from the North. The play is likened to another Uncle Tom's Cabin, only treated from the white man's point of view. It has been received with enthusiasm throughout the South, with the exception of Columbia, South Carolina, where editor Gonzalez of the state has challenged Mr. Dixon's facts and questioned his sincerity. The Southern people as a body view the peace favorably. Some assert that it will intensify race feelings in the South, while others hold that it is the very thing needed to force an issue of vital interest to the entire nation. The following account of the play written by the author himself will be read with much interest, the editor. So I'm gonna, I, I did have the actual writing from Thomas Dixon. I'm not gonna go into that. I'm just gonna read one little uh, clip from it. So this is from Thomas Dixon in 1904. So this is 11 years before the movie came out. Speaking of what he wrote. So it's about how the young South, led by the reincarnated souls of the clansmen of old Scotland, went forth under this cover and against overwhelming odds, and they were daring exile, imprisonment, and a felon's death. And what did they do? They saved the life of a people. And this forms one of the most dramatic chapters in the history of the Aryan race. It's interesting because when you start hearing the word Aryan, it triggers things because that's Hitler language. Aryan supremacy. Hitler is going to get his model of segregation by studying the United States. Now, the United States, in all fairness, did not handle things the way Hitler did. We didn't exterminate like that, right? And yet, we have the same root problem. It's there. And I'm not saying it's there in such a conscious way now, but here's what I would say. It's like me having something in my past that maybe I don't do now, but I never addressed. It's like me harming someone in the past, but then saying, but I don't do that anymore. And just acting like it's no big deal instead of allowing the Spirit of God to say, Eric, let's address this. So it's hard because the moment you start talking about things like that, you immediately end up with modern political tensions. And I'm wanting to somehow, as the body of Christ, get rid of the political tension in this. We are Christians first. I want us to address this as Christians, and I want to prayerfully consider these things as Christians, not as uh, political delegates of an idea. The threat. What is the threat? The black man was looking longingly at the opportunities, the social position, the educational possibilities, the real estate owning abilities, and the vast uncapped earning potential of the white. And I could say, do you blame them? 
Do you blame them for being set free? They have equal rights, but with separation. That's the way it was described. But they would say, we don't have equal rights. I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. Everything is separate, but they're also separated from the ability to have the much of the white man. Now, if I was going to be honest, if I'm talking with a black person, or I'm talking with you, and say you were separated as a Christian from the much, say you couldn't get a job unless you, you know, disavowed your Christianity, and so you were separated from the much, I'd say the same thing to you. It's like, your job is not to give way to self-pity. Your job is to be a victor wherever you're at. That would be my encouragement. If I'm talking to the white person, I'm going to say, you better change this. This is incorrect, and this is not the system that you create to oppress any people. So there's, there's just a short list here. Only the white man can drink from the, that water fountain. No, 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 that's, that's the white man's water fountain. This is literally how it worked. And you have the colored water fountain over here. Okay. Only the white man can use that toilet. Only the white man can enter through that door. You know when, uh, who's the guy that won all the Olympic medals in Berlin? Uh, the black man, Jesse Owens. So Jesse Owens comes back a national hero. I mean, he's literally broken multiple world records. He's just shined for our country. And they have a benefit in his honor in some big hotel. And the bellmen in the front of the hotel would not allow him to come in through the front door. He had to go through the alley and in through the restaurant door to his own benefit. <laughs> that was celebrating his accomplishment in Berlin. Uh, I think that should be enough of a giveaway that something's a little off here, guys. Only the white man can sit in that seat. Only the white man can get that education. You have black schools and you have white schools. It's interesting because the black schools were of lesser quality. The best always went to the white. Only the white man can get that job. Only the white man can live in that neighborhood. There were neighborhoods that were totally segregated and you could not, they would not sell to a black man. It was in the covenants of the neighborhood. You could not sell to anyone but white. Only the white man knows what is best for our great country, which is why leadership positions and governmental positions were going to the white man. And so when you start with that premise, and of course to violate that, if you remember the Jim Crow laws, would lead to what's called a lynching, where the Ku Klux Klan would, in the night, take you and make your life rather miserable by hanging you. Uh, and so it's, it's a very big deal. You do not want to accidentally cross those lines. This is just some pictures. There's a colored water fountain. And you know there's the white one, and then there's the colored one. And to make sure you go to the right one. Uh, this sign uh, says, for use by white persons. These public premises and the amenities thereof have been reserved for the exclusive use of white persons. So there is a colored waiting room. So when you're waiting for uh, the train, there's a waiting room for you, and that's the, that's the place you have to be. You do not want to accidentally go into the wrong waiting room. And this is, I think, one of the most heartbreaking things for me as I've gone through all of this is the treatment towards someone who accidentally crosses a line and does something they weren't supposed to. They lived with a complete paranoia over not wanting to break a Jim Crow law. And they may even sincerely want to keep the law, but it was, there were so many different zones and you could never cross it. If a white man walks into a colored waiting room, no big deal. 
But if a colored man walks into a white waiting room, it's a huge deal. So what they had, this one guy, and I forgot what the guy's name was, Victor Green, is going to put together what's called the Negro Motorist Green Book. And so I think it came out in 1938. I can't read that top uh, corner there. But this is, this is going to show uh, if, if you're black, skins, well, then as you're trying to travel and have a vacation with your family, you have no idea where to go. Where, where could you possibly mess up next, right? So this is going to give them hotels. Uh, I can't read this stuff. Garages, nightclubs, uh, service stations. It's going to show them all the places that are safe for them to go. And this is going to be a huge thing for the black community for quite a long time. Like this is the 1955 edition. This was the 1940 edition, I believe. This is the 1955. The first one was 25 cents. This is a dollar uh, 25. Talk about inflation. This one really has gone up in value. And yet this is how they survived. This is how they would be mobile. Now, I could ask you, have you ever had to concern yourself which restaurant to go into, which one not to go into, which gas station to use, which one not to use, which hotel? You don't even dare walk through the door because you would be violating a white establishment. I would say it's very likely that most of you in here have never experienced that. And so for us to at least have enough sensitivity to say, okay, that did happen, is important. Oh, did I just put that on the screen again? I need that one picture of me riding that bike through sand. White privilege. So I don't even want to try and argue if this is still a thing. Because that, that's a hot topic, and that will get us off topic from what I want to be covering. But it's a big issue in our culture today. So is it a real thing? Well, if not today, at one point in our history, it was a very real thing. So... I think for us to at least grant that grace would be important. Even though I, it's sort of hard because for me, I'm not against the idea of someone say, saying to me, Eric Ludy, you have much. I agree. I have been given much. And I don't want to argue that and make it sound like, what? No, I don't. Because it might not be material wealth, but I have been given much. And that's part of my attitude as a believer that it's okay for me to accept the fact that I have received a lot. And if the only thing I have, if I was impoverished, if I had a terrible family, if I had terrible health, but I had Jesus, I have much. What if you have much that you don't see or can't see as much? Well, it's likely you won't handle this much well. One of the reasons I'm bringing this up, and the reason I said I'm going to handle this from a different angle than you would expect, is I want to talk about our much. And I want you to allow God to freshly show you the much that you have received. You know that if all of us start looking at, our, at what much we've received from God, which is just what thankfulness is, that we stop being sensitized to what we don't have and what we don't have privilege to access. And this is the secret, no matter what color skin you are, no, what, no matter what gender you are, no matter how tall you are, there's so, certain things it's like, yeah, they always favor the tall guy and the shorter people never get the jobs. I, I mean, I've heard all of this throughout my life. And there are certain things like race has been a huge one. There are real biases towards race. There are real biases towards 
uh, women, and there have been in the workplace, and I'm not even going to say they're totally gone, right? This exists. It's humanity is what it is, guys. It's not just the American culture. You go anywhere in the world and you're going to see biases. They just take on a different shade, a different color, a different angle. Because we are human, marked by selfishness and sin. And when we are harmed by something in our life, we have a tendency to create a bias against that something. So if you were growing up and you were harmed by a man, an older man with a beard, you have a tendency to shy away from older men with beards. It's just the way it is. It's how we function. So just imagine if you were young, black, and you were harmed by a white person. Can you understand? Or your dad was harmed by them. Or your dad was even lynched by one. Can you imagine the storyline that is going to go through that history? Yeah, I could. And so I can give understanding to these things of this dynamic and this stickiness and this tension that we have. And I'm not going to say that there haven't been people, even spiritual uh, groups and Christian groups, that haven't attempted to address this and to seek reconciliation. That's what it is. To seek making things right. The government has stepped in to try and make things right, which only usually makes it worse because it's a forced making it right. It's like, you are going to say you're sorry to one another. I don't want to. I don't want to say I'm sorry. You see, it doesn't work that way. It starts inside. And that's why I say it starts with us. It doesn't start with someone down the street. It starts with us. Luke 12, 48. Everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Luke 16, 10 through 12. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is, also, is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? We are tested with the little we do have. Look at your much. If you're clinging to it, you're going to lose it. But if you take the much you have and you say, thank you, Lord, for the much I have. It's like having a few loaves and fish and realizing that it's not much. But then Jesus looks at it and says, hey, that's much. He says, could you give it to me? Like, what can he do with this? this He's like, that's much. Could you give your much to me? And he feeds thousands. You see, for us, our job is to relinquish our much, to thank him for it, and then to hand it back to him and let him do something with it that is far greater than we could do it if we were to hoard it and hang on to it, which only causes us to lose it. The responsibility of much. If you have much, what are you responsible for? Well, it says much is required. What does that mean? So let's look at a picture of much. Talents of gold, meanness of silver. Matthew 25, 14 through 29. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, 
I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him, give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. What's our lesson? You've been entrusted something by the king of the universe, and this is your season to invest. Most of us are inclined to invest in ourselves, which is the equivalent of burying in the ground. It yields no interest for the kingdom of heaven. But when we take what we have been given, because you could look at the guy with five and look at your two, it's like, excuse me? Why did he get five and I got two? Hey, what are you going to do with your two? You see, if you live content with your two, you will thrive in your life. It's when you look at someone with five that it really throws you off. Now that one with five is responsible with five. He has been given much, therefore it's required of him. And so for all of us, I don't want you to measure against someone else around you. It's like, oh, they have one, oh, they have five, oh, I only have two. But to cherish what you do have. And the fact that you have breath in your lungs and you can actually take this season of your life and give Jesus, what does this do? Luke 19, 16 through 17. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, you have authority over 10 cities. Ironically, the secret to much, just like the secret to the flour and the oil not running out, is that you relinquish the much you have. You make it available and expendable in his, category, in his uh, care. So what do you have, guys? Do you have much? So this is important for you all to, to think of because if I could have everyone in the world sitting in front of me right now and I could somehow communicate this to them, actually every single one of us should just rest and say, you know what? I've been blessed. Now, there's some really difficult situations out there that are extra hard to say, yeah, I have much. And yet, what I want you to do is not yet focus on that. I want you to allow God to first and foremost focus on you and say, what do you have? Because the world could come to you and they could say, hey, could you give me a, a step up? I, I need some money. I don't have anything. And you could feel in your pockets like, I don't have much <laughs> as far as that goes. So listen, listen to this line, Acts 3, 6, Peter speaking. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. You see, you actually have something. You may not have that much when it comes to money. You may not have a lot of talent, but you have a lot of Jesus. You have much. The ethics of much. Don't complain about the much you don't have. 
Instead, cherish the much you do have. Then extravagantly share with others that precious much you've been entrusted. This goes straight across every race, every gender. It doesn't make any sense. There's only two genders, by the way. It goes, it goes across, and it makes us, that's not a political statement. That's a biblical one. This is how we think and we reason, and we don't allow the devil to play us. But for those of us that have much, much is required. Then extravagantly share with others that precious much you've been entrusted. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, open your mouth for the speechless. That's the New King James. NIV says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. ESV, open your mouths for the mute. So what if someone couldn't speak and you have a voice? What do you do? You're supposed to speak up for them. You're supposed to share the much you have. Let's ask Helen what she thinks. You guys ever heard of Helen Keller? Extraordinary woman. I mean, truly a remarkable storyline. She's deaf and she's blind. So she cannot, never heard a human voice in her life. She has never seen anything. She can smell and feel. And her story is remarkable because she is going to become a strong woman of influence. She is going to learn how to speak. She needs a translator, and the, the lady that was with her would literally, she would, Helen would speak and, because it wasn't clear to everyone because she never heard a, a human voice in her life. She didn't know how loud, and so she was trained. She, she trained her whole life to see if she could actually speak, and she couldn't speak. But wow, the impact she made. She was a writer. She wrote a whole bunch of things. I mean, she came and see or hear and she writes, I mean, extraordinary, right? And listen to what she said. Helen Keller said this, it's not blindness or deafness that bring me my darkest hours. It is the acute disappointment in not being able to speak normally. Long hours I have pondered how much more good I could have done if I'd acquired normal speech. And here she is doing more than most of us, if not all of us combined. And yet she's like, oh, but I could have done more good if I'd been able to speak. And then look at us. We have much. You weren't thinking of a voice as being much, were you? And yet you have something. You are privileged to have a voice. So speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. You've been given something, guys. Stop bemoaning the fact that you have a system against you. That it seems like the world is conspiring to make it hard for us as believers in this hour. We have something very special. It's the very thing this world needs. Let's stop being the victim and let's start portraying the victor. Father, we ask for your grace to be made manifest in our lives. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would convince us of our much. Silver and gold we may not have, but such as we do have, Lord, we want to share with the world. And even if it's as simple as a human voice to speak up for those that can't speak for themselves. Lord, give us this grace. We love you and we trust you, Lord. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. 
and our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.